Welcome to Liberty Chats, produced by members of the Steamboat Institute's Emerging Leaders Council. Thank you for joining us. We talk to a variety of experts, leaders, journalists, and policymakers about our nation's founding principles, why they are still so relevant and essential to preserving freedom for everyone, what specific challenges and threats they face today, and how those founding principles best safeguard and empower everyone's ability, young and old, to attain prosperity and personal happiness. Hello, and welcome to Liberty Chats, a new podcast from the Steamboat Institute. My name is Zachary Rogers, a member of the Emerging Leaders Council at the Steamboat Institute. Uh, We are dedicated to promoting freedom, liberty, and civil dialogue. Today, our guest is Rachel Bovard, Senior Director of Policy at the Conservative Policy Institute. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk about uh, presidential personnel policy, and we're, we're going to cover what it is, uh, what went right, and what went wrong with the uh, Trump administration, and what Republicans should do to improve that process in the next administration. Sounds great. Excellent. So can you explain a little bit uh, what exactly is executive personnel policy, and why does it matter? So members of the conservative movement may be familiar with a sentiment expressed by Morton Blackwell, who's longtime conservative activist, head of the Leadership Institute, in which he says personnel is policy. And he goes into great detail about what that means. But essentially, you know, who you hire is a reflection of the policies you're going to get. And so you need to have excellent personnel, personnel that are aligned with what you're trying to do as president. And so That is what I think is meant really by personnel being policy. Now, the White House has an entire department dedicated to finding personnel, right? It's the it's the presidential personnel office, the PPO, and it's staffed by people who are, you know, their whole job is to find qualified people to do jobs within the administration, within the executive branch. And this includes the agencies, but also, you know, they're searching for people that are really ideologically aligned, you know, and philosophically aligned with the president as well. So that's the official structure for how that works. But there's also a lot of informal structures that, that, that take place as well. So a lot of the early hires made by a white house are done sort of by the political side, by the white house chief of staff, you know, bringing people in and placing them in specific positions. Um, you saw this very early on in the Trump administration when Reince Priebus was the first chief of staff bringing in people, you know, from more establishment corners of Washington uh, into the white house. It, you know, didn't work out the best, I think, in the initial couple of months. And so, you know, they switched chief of staffs and and kind of tried to to fix that process a little bit. But you can see, I think, from the early years of the Trump administration, how, you know, personnel does shape policy, right? Who was in these jobs dictated what those policy outcomes were going to look like. So it's less about the words on a page of what the policy is than almost about who is shaping it. Well, I think that's a great overview of what it is and why it matters. You know, they shaped the policy and uh, to a great degree influenced what happened with the administration. Um, So I guess that went a little bit into what went right and what went wrong. Um, Would you care to elaborate a little more on, on, you know, how those initial uh, personnel decisions were made and how that changed over the course of four years? Yeah. So one of the things, you know, I think that Trump, the Trump administration really suffered from was you know, Trump in many ways was a break with traditional Republican orthodoxies on key issues around, you know, defense, right? He said, no more endless wars. Mm-hmm. You know, Republicans have traditionally been, you know, the party of, of military intervention and, and, you know, strong foreign policy in that way. 
He also wanted, you know, he was less ideological, I think, about free trade. He had more of a, you know, moderate policy on trade, you know, imposed tariffs as a way to, you know, force other countries to treat us better in trade deals, things that Republicans just hadn't done in a long time. Mm -hmm. And as, you know, because of that, I think, you know, when, you know, you pull from all these different institutions in Washington, right? Traditionally, when a White House is hiring, they pull from Capitol Hill, they pull from, you know, think tanks in Washington, all these places. But a lot of those staff were reflecting, you know, beliefs and, and policy positions that Trump himself was not. And so uh, I wrote a long think piece about this for the American conservative, and I focused on DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, is sort of a microcosm of this effort, because based on who was in charge there, you know, you saw policies change. Mm-hmm. Um you know, you saw when Kirsten Nielsen uh, took over DHS, uh, when her boss was, when John Kelly was moved over to the chief of staff position in the White House, you know, she didn't herself seem quite as committed to the border hawk policies of the Trump administration. You know, she went before Congress and said, we don't actually need a, a huge border wall. You know, there's other things that we can do. You know, she seemed very uncomfortable with the policies toward asylees, um, you know, at the border, um, was was sort of half-hearted defending what Trump wanted to do. And as a result, DHS w- wasn't really that effective um, mm-hmm. in doing what Trump wanted. Now, you saw that change when Ken Cuccinelli uh, took over as the deputy DHS and Chad Wolf took over as the head of DHS, both of whom were not only, I think, very committed to the president's agenda on immigration, but also very savvy political operators themselves. Um, both of them came from these political backgrounds. They knew how to sort of work the system. And you saw, you know, as soon as, you know, Chad Wolf took over, you saw um, the migration, the Remain in Mexico program was implemented, right? And that was the program that said, look, if you want to claim asylum in the United States, you have to wait for your hearing in Mexico, as opposed to being brought in and released into the interior of the United States. Probably one of the most effective uh, immigration policies that Trump implemented. Mm -hmm. Um, With Ken Cuccinelli, you saw him do sort of regulatory battle on the H-1B visa front, you know, basically saying, look, we know that corporations, big corporations are exploiting this loophole under the H-1B, you know, visas to fire American workers and replace them with cheaper foreign labor. We're going to change regulations to make sure that doesn't happen, to make sure that H-1Bs are just for highly skilled workers, you know, at certain compensation levels. Um, And again, very effective, longstanding change that the Trump administration made under DHS. And that, I I really do believe it, it purely was about who was in the job number one, their skill set, but two, that they were philosophically aligned and intuitively understood what Trump was trying to do, you know, as opposed to someone like Kirsten Nielsen, who's very experienced, has a ton of tremendous knowledge on this subject, but wasn't quite on board with what Trump was trying to do, didn't quite, you know, see how Trump wanted to change things in, you know, away from, for instance, you know, the Bush administration and things like that. So it, it seems like it, it, the key here really was uh, the PPO office. So were there any changes made over the course of the four years? You know, there's a lot of staff turnover uh, throughout the four years. It can be a little dizzying, but at the PPO specifically, did they change personnel and was that reflected um, in the, the personnel policies they made? It was. Um, you know, the first head of PPO was was Johnny DeStefano, who was a longtime aide to former House Speaker John Boehner. Very much a creature of Washington. Um, I think Washington establishment, I don't mean that in a pejorative way. It's just sort of what he reflected was just sort of the established Republican consensus in Washington, mm-hmm. which I think it's fair to say Trump was not. Right. And so I think DeStefano 
you know, filled positions around the administration with people that sort of thought like him, but didn't really think like Trump. And I think that was recognized by, you know, two or three years in that Trump himself was actually being undermined by members of his own team who just didn't agree with him. Mm -hmm. Right. And not that they weren't qualified, not that they weren't good people, but as a president, you want people who agree with you, right? You you want your political appointees have to ex- reflect and execute on your agenda. And so a threshold test for that philosophical alignment, you know, should be baseline, mm-hmm. you know, and I think in a lot of ways that wasn't, right? It was more about, well, if you're a Republican and there's a Republican in the White House, you should just get a job there, right? And sort of that was the traditional way things have been done. Um, DeStefano was later replaced by uh, Johnny McEntee, who very much um, was aligned with Trump, knew Trump very well. He used to be Trump's body man. And so Mm -hmm. he was very, uh, again, sort of had that intuitive grasp of of what Trump was trying to accomplish and was not afraid to sort of, I think, test for willingness of appointees to actually get the job done, right? People who were politically savvy enough, but also were committed, again, to the agenda. And to be clear, I'm not talking about, when I say philosophical alignment, I'm not talking about being a sycophant or a yes man. I'm just saying someone who actually just agrees with <laughs> the policy mm-hmm. goals of what the president is trying to do. And I think once McEntee and his team were in place, you really saw you saw significant changes uh, you know, among personnel in the administration. And that was when I think the Trump administration really started churning forward on some really key issues. You saw them take on big tech um, when you had a, Adam Kandu, but the NTIA. Um you know, you saw them really aggress on a lot of the critical race theory um, issues that OMB took on. And again, you know, the OMB staff didn't change, but the people they worked with did. And so they were more free, I think, to focus on on those key areas where um, Trump really, I think, had some significant impact. Mm-hmm. So those are those are excellent points. Republicans now have four years to think about what went right and what went wrong. What should we be considering um, to improve the process, you know, for the next administra- administration? So one thing that, I mean, there was a lot that came out of the Trump administration, obviously, but one one thing I think is really significant for the Republican Party going forward is the, the base of voters that Trump constructed is, you know, you've heard it said, more diverse, working class, um, broader than I think previous Republican presidents. And so I think it's going to be incumbent on the Republican Party to serve that base and keep those members, you know, the new members of our coalition in the coalition with us. And that's going to require, I think, some self-reflection, right, on, on things that, you know, what was compelling about Trump's message? Because in many ways, Trump's message blew up Republican orthodoxy. I've already mentioned trade. I've already mentioned, you know, immigration a little bit, um, defense and war, um, even economic policy he appealed to a broader swath of voters than we have been able to appeal to in the past. And I think he was really, one of the reasons he, I think, could have been more effective on that front was that he didn't have the staff to serve him well. And that it partly reflects the failure of Republican institutions, right? Mm. Republican institutions very much think one way about things and it wasn't necessarily Trump's way. And so I think going forward, you know, Republican, I think it's time for new institutions to be created, you know, alongside sort of the legacy institutions of the Republican Party. I think there's going to, you're going to, you're already seeing sort of new think tanks spring up, new activist organizations that are very much honing in on um, elements of Trump's message that weren't necessarily reflected in the Republican establishment before this. 
um, because that's the fertile ground for the next Republican administration. Right. Mm -hmm. If someone comes in with the same, if a Republican comes to power with similar policy views as Trump, they need to be able to pull from, you know, institutions that are aligned with them in a way that Trump was unable to do. So I think anytime a party is out of power, the time two things have to happen. One, self-reflection, what what drove them out of power. Right. What to Mm -hmm. keep and what to disregard from 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 that. But also it's a time to build. Right. It's time to renew and it's time to build. And that and you build institutions, um, you know, you raise up a next, the next generation of leaders. That should be the focus right now, I think, for the Republican Party institutionally in Washington. Excellent. So I, I have one more question related to that, and we're almost out of time. Are we actually building new institutions? Is that uh, beginning uh, to happen in D.C. where this will be possible to recruit uh, like-minded staff if a similar uh president is elected with a similar policy agenda. We are. Um, it's actually, I think, a really exciting time uh, for the for the Republican Party in this regard. So here at the Conservative Partnership, we have been incubating a number of new groups, um, some of which are, have already been announced and some which will be forthcoming. You know, Russ Vogt, who was the head of the Office of Management and Budget under President Trump, just announced his new group, the Center for American Restoration. That's really going to focus on sort of building out the intellectual justification um, for a lot of what Trump wanted to do on critical race theory, um, you know, on sort of this idea of, you know, America's history, America's founding, um, taking on big tech, you know, all those kind of issues he's he's really going to focus on. And that, that will have an activist arm as well. Um, you know, you're already seeing uh, Ben Carson, the former uh, secretary of housing and urban development. He's announced he's forming a new group sort of focused on self-reliance, um, you know, and housing in those areas. So those are two groups that have, have are, are now forming. And several others, I think, are um, are online, right? They're they're forthcoming. And so there it really is an intellectual ferment going on, I think, around, you know, people recognize that, you know, Trump, the Trump administration had a lot of successes and had a lot of failures. And, you know, they're parsing through how to capitalize on those successes and how to make sure the failures turn into wins for next time. So I am really excited. You know, we may be out of power, but that doesn't mean we've stopped thinking and moving toward, um, you know, what we're going to do when we eventually gain power back. Excellent. No, it's certainly a time for reflection and and rebuilding new opportunities over the next four years. Um, So we're out of time. Thank you so much for uh, joining me and joining Liberty Chats. Please share the show. And if you enjoyed it, please leave a review on iTunes. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to today's Liberty Chat. I'm Erica Anderson, the producer of the podcast. Our podcast editor is Fingers Malloy. My co-producers include Charlotte Whalen, Zachary Rogers, Lindsay Martin, and Christina Eastman, all members of the Steamboat Institute's Emerging Leaders Council, who represent the next generation of free market, free speech leadership. We hope you tune in again for our next Liberty Chat episode. <laughs>